You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Hey, it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is that every time you remember something, it changes a little bit. And that's because when you remember it, you're not actually remembering what happened, you're remembering when you remembered what happened. So if you misremembered something last time, when you recall it again and again and again, you can actually end up cementing false memories, which is kind of interesting. And it also means that you may not remember things as well as you think you do. Uh, Certainly in my case, I don't remember things as well as I think I do at all, at least according to my wife. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is the director of research and lead professor at the Neuro Leadership Institute, which is an institute dedicated to synthesizing scientific research and using it for business and leadership. So tying science to leadership, which is kind of a squishy topic in in most academic disciplines where it's hard to quantify what leaders do. And he's taught at Columbia, New York University and the Barnard College at Columbia University. He's written for hbr.org and a bunch of other things like Psychology Today and wrote a book, which is why he's on the show. The book is called Two Awesome Hours, Science-Based Strategies to Harness Your Best Time and Get Your Most Important Work Done 
Well, if you're a long-time Bulletproof listener, you can kind of tell why that's part and parcel to why this show exists. So you can figure out the things that make you kick more ass, which is exactly why we have none other than Dr. Josh Davis on the show. Josh, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me here. So you're in Brooklyn today, and I'm here on sunny Vancouver Island, kind of opposite ends of the world. And you're you're just an interesting guy in all sorts of, of things, but I wanted to ask you a question that I wasn't planning to ask you. Because okay. you've studied both neuroscience, but you've also studied neurolinguistic programming, something called NLP. And for people listening, you know, NLP is a, a, a way of using language that kind of gets around some of our thought processes that's used commonly in marketing and some other tactics that are not always positive. What made you study neurolinguistic programming and neuroscience at the same time? Like that, those are kind of like hacking language sorts of areas. Yeah. Well, so I, I have an interesting uh, history that's connected to that. Um, growing up, my parents are psychotherapists. They run a family therapy institute, and in the uh, around 1980, they. Uh, learned about neurolinguistic programming because they wanted to study some of the people that the founders of NLP were studying, um, some psychotherapists. That was what NLP was about, was that there were some, there was uh, one linguist and uh, one psychologist who set out to study the language patterns of a handful of psychotherapists who were very successful and see if they could distill what was essential from it and teach it to other people. So uh, my parents, being psychotherapists, heard about this and uh, couldn't get out to study with the original masters, Milton Erickson in hypnotherapy and uh, Virginia Satir in family therapy, um, Fritz Perls in uh, gestalt therapy. So they studied uh, what, what uh, neuro-linguistic programming had to say about those practitioners, learned a great deal, thought it was fantastic, and, uh, and started incorporating that into their own work. So I kind of grew up knowing something about it. Over the years, as you've pointed out, other people besides psychotherapists have found uses for it. Anything that's going to take language and help people change or help people understand how someone they're talking to is thinking about the world is going to have many applications. And so people have applied it in all kinds of ways. I've always been around it in the context of psychotherapy, though. And, uh, and so I came with that background. And as, a, as an adult, I wanted to study it more formally. So I learned about it myself, took classes and um, started teaching some about it. And then totally separately, I also uh, did, a, did doctoral work in psychology and some neuroscience research. Um, so I have, I guess I'm one of the few people who, who knows both this practical realm of NLP-based uh, a sort of linguistic-based focus on certain psychotherapy practices, and then this the scientific realm, and, and uh, you know where the two meet, and where you know where there's there are things from NLP that really fit with research, um, and which things remain a mystery or uh, that sort of thing. So it's it's definitely a unique perspective. I think I don't know of anyone else with that combined background. I haven't met them yet. Uh, that's what makes you a, a perfect guest for a bulletproof radio. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's also the fact that you were an engineer and then a high school teacher before you studied neuroscience. You, you've, what about being a high school teacher made you decide you wanted to become a doctorate level researcher in neuroscience? It's kind of a, also an unusual path. It is an unusual path. It is an unusual path. I mean, for me, uh, these are all things that I'm interested in. It's not strange at all that I've spent time studying them. but. Uh, but I see how from the outside, these seem like they're disjunct, <laughs> uh, you know, steps. Uh, what really happened that was a, a 
a catalyzing period in my life. I had uh, I I had left an engineering job to, in order to move to New York City. That I liked the work quite a lot, but when I got to New York, uh, there wasn't there weren't that many uh, jobs to be honest in that particular type of engineering, product design engineering. It wasn't happening in New York at that time. So I tried something else out that had always been on my radar. I'd always been curious about how I could do uh, in teaching. So I, I got a job as a high school teacher. It was in a last chance Brooklyn public high school teaching physics and math primarily. And uh, I just fell in love with it. I mean, there were so many interesting elements of figuring out how do you communicate effectively? How do you get into the minds and the worlds of people from very different backgrounds? Uh, how do you get them to do what you want them to do? How do you also teach the content? You know, how do you communicate something complex without dumbing it down um, to someone who doesn't have a background? There are just so many interesting questions and I just fell in love with it. So at that point, and to be honest, it was a monetary thing. They just weren't able to pay enough um, at the time. So I said, how can I teach? How can I continue to teach um, this craft that I've now fallen in love with? Uh, it, it, at a higher level, uh, maybe reach more people. Neuroscience, psychology, those are areas that have long been of interest to me, as you can guess from my background growing up, and also were you know, a very hot area of research. And so it was naturally exciting for me to get involved um, but even there, you know, I've, I've, I really enjoyed the research, but I, I still continue to love the craft of teaching. And to me, you know, the opportunity to write a book was actually a chance to do that on the grandest scale I've had so far, um, to really try to help bring people insight about understanding their brains and how that can affect some really important aspects of their lives. Well, let's talk about your book then. Uh, what are the two awesome hours? <laughs> <laughs> they talk about like, like yeah. give it to me straight. We only have forty five minutes. <laughs> All right, exactly. Let's make these forty five awesome minutes. So, you know, I, I'm just going to step back one piece. Uh, de I am definitely going to answer the question directly, but I just want to give a little context, which is that what what it is in answer to, and that's that. We are all so overwhelmed these days. Everyone has more work to do than they can do. It's just gotten to a point where it's actually impossible for just about anyone to get to everything on their list. And part of that is based on technology. We're now, we have so many efficiencies. We can be reached anytime. And we even reward one another for this. When we get back to someone quickly, that kind of rewards them for asking for something at any time. So we're all, we're all complicit. But for whatever reasons we've gotten to this point, there are too many things on everyone's to-do list. And I watch good people work hard, come home at the end of the day after contributing something very important, you know, really helping their team succeed, their company succeed, and feeling bad about themselves, like they can never get enough done. It's never enough. That, to me, wasn't okay. That that, that's a violation of my values. And I was doing it, too. And so it was especially hurtful for it to be a violation of my own values, to, to be doing something that I was you know, to be engaged in it myself. So, you know, I think many people have addressed that challenge. What happened, there was a moment when something clicked, and that was when I realized that we can really do some amazing things in short periods of time. But yet our, our traditional approach when we feel overwhelmed is just to hunker down and say, okay, I've got to have more time on task. I just need to stay focused. I need more hours. 
that would make sense if we were talking about maybe a factory, you know, where you just want to run the machines more often because the more time on task means the more that you get done. You get the same output every time, run it as often as you can. But that's, a, that's actually a terrible model for a human being. We can do some pretty amazing things, though, that machines can't do. We can have these incredible bursts of productivity. You know, in a half hour, you can figure out exactly what the lineup needs to be for a series of talks. You can figure out who to have on your team. You can map out some amazing marketing plan. You can figure out, you know, the key points in a chapter that's going to really make for an amazing book. I mean, there's some incredible things we can do in these short bursts of time. And then other times, I, I don't know about you, I certainly can be very ineffective, you know, for, you know, practically worthless for days on end. <laughs> so, right. So this, you know, so... So what I started to turn my attention towards was to say, if we can set up brief periods of time when we're highly effective, sometimes there must be conditions for it. What are those conditions? Can we learn something about neuroscience and psychology for, from neuroscience and psychology research about how to set up the conditions for those brief periods of time for what can often be two hours? So that's the idea. There's actually nothing magical about two. The, it's just that two is something that I think is reasonable and achievable for anyone. There's a lot of people who have no awesome hours in a day and it's easy to move to two awesome hours just after, you know, spending, you know, an hour or two reading the book. I mean, it's not, this is not stuff that needs to be, you know, intense work over days, that kind of thing. It's just a few shifts that we can make. But so two hours, I think, is reasonable and achievable. You may end up having four awesome hours in a day. You may have six awesome hours. You may just have 30 awesome minutes. But that's the concept. That's what two awesome hours is about. So, so you talk about we have too much work. Our to-do lists are too long. Uh, I blame to-do lists for, for making to-do lists too long. Lists are too easy. <laughs> so I, I don't like to-do lists. Uh -huh. But what do people do? You're talking about you know, a bunch of techniques. So for people listening right now, ones who haven't gone out and bought your book yet, and who might, what is, say, the most important thing you can do to get to get more of those awesome hours where you're actually productive in a day? Mm -hmm. So I think if there's one most important thing, it's recognizing one tool that helps you take advantage of all the tools that, that I'll talk about in the book and that we'll talk about today. And that is learning about decision points that actually most of the day we're operating on autopilot. We're... You know, it's, it's not that we are, we're, you know, we're just unconscious, but we're not consciously monitoring a lot of what we're doing. We can do it relatively automatically. And, you know, as, as time goes on, as we become more expert at things, then we operate more and more on autopilot. And this can be fairly complex stuff. You know, it can be having a conversation right now, you know, doing an interview. If you've done many interviews, a lot of it can be done on autopilot and that frees you up to think more about, well, how do I want to change the nuance of this question or how do I want to respond to that person you know and it, it can be you know there's there's teaching mode there's there's interview mode there's meeting mode there's commuting mode you know there's telephone mode we we have these modes that we go into when we uh, when we start engaging in a task and autopilot will take care of things so long as it can we are uh, there's a term that I love from from psychology research called uh, that we're called cognitive misers that we will spend less cognitive energy if we can. 
I, so, I always just said I was lazy, but all right, I'm a cognitive miser. <laughs> I, I like that, but strategic no, laziness yeah. is very valuable. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Strategic laziness, cognitive miser, there's all kinds of great reframes that can make you feel better about yourself. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I think actually that that's part of the part of understanding that sort of the, the self-compassion that can come from understanding your brain can make it easier to know when to stop beating your head against the wall. And I think that's an important part of what the book is about, too. So what happens with this, you know, this autopilot is that we can't really snap out of it so easily. What, what we'll do is we'll continue to operate on autopilot unless autopilot fails, unless there's some competing thing demanding our attention and autopilot just can't make it work out. So let's say that uh, I'm in a meeting and, you know, I'm trying to focus and pay attention, but then my phone rings and I see, you know, I see that it's my wife. Right. So I have these competing demands. I want to be present for the meeting, but I also know that my wife wouldn't be calling me at this time unless it was important. And so, you know, meeting meeting mode, my auto, autopilot for meeting mode isn't able to take care of it. What happens when I have competing demands on my conscious attention is that it brings more conscious resources online, that there's more activity than in prefrontal parts of the brain, for example, to allow me to handle that, to make a conscious decision. Those moments when autopilot breaks down, those moments are golden. Those moments are decision points. That's when we can decide what task to work on. And it's time gets wasted when we get started on the wrong task. Time does not get wasted during the decision points, but the decision points feel like an eternity because that's when you're aware of being unproductive or that you're not getting something done. So recognizing those decision points, and there's a few times in the day when they tend to come regularly, when you can learn to expect them, that I think makes it a lot easier to recognize them also. But it's, it's recognizing when you're in a decision point and really taking it, taking a moment then to step back and think, wait, what's actually important for me to do right now? And then starting your work. Okay, so instead of just jumping into your email or into the meeting in front of you, you're proposing that people have more effective time if they basically ask themselves why they're doing what they're doing ahead of time. And am I framing that right? It's it's almost that. It's asking themselves what actually should I be doing. So so decision points will probably come. Let's say right when you get to work, they'll come right after a meeting ends. They'll come right after a phone call ends. They'll come right after you get back to work from lunch. Essentially, they're at the beginning and the end of any task. You're going to have a moment at the beginning and the end of any task when you're not on autopilot, when you need to consciously decide what to do. And in that moment, just pausing for long enough to remember what's actually important. This is where, you know, the famous advice, do what's important, not urgent. But the challenge is, how do we actually do that? This is how you do that, is by recognizing I'm in a decision point. I actually have a capacity I don't have most of the day to step back, remember what's important, and choose to do that instead. And, and it's when we when we don't do that, then we just start thinking, oh, I've got to start getting something done, uh, that, whatever it is, whatever's right in front of you. Maybe it's checking email or, you know, getting back to somebody who needed something that isn't actually in the top of your list. So that's kind of, that's kind of the key, is really taking advantage of those moments. Do you have some sort of a ritual you do, say at the start of a meeting? Uh, that that'd be a good one. I don't know how many meetings you have in your in your mm-hmm. life. But, yeah, there's a bunch. Uh, okay, so so do you sit down and be like, okay, 
So here's what's important. Like, like, do you write it in a notebook? Do you sort of tell yourself that? Because it, it, it sounds almost like cliche, like only do what's important. You're like, well, well really? <laughs> right. Well, that, that's the thing. We all know we should only do what's important, but then it's actually remembering to do that at the right time is the key. And if you ask anybody, you know, when on a weekend, what's actually important in your work, it's not that hard for them to know what's important. I know that I should be either giving talks or preparing talks or I should be writing papers or writing books. I mean, if I'm doing something that's not leading to one of those things, it's actually not that important compared to the other stuff I have. But, you know, if I sit down at the beginning of the day, there's a ton of other things that are demanding my attention. So, you know, it's having that moment to remember. So I do actually have a bit of a ritual. For me, it's not writing something down, but right before, say, a meeting or right before sitting down to any work, really, I do take a moment and I ask myself, how do I want to show up? I ask myself, what's my mental energy right now? That's one of the other chapters, strategies in the book is to manage your mental energy. You know, what do I have the mental energy for this right now? If not, do I need to go and do something to create that mental mental energy? Or do I want to choose something else to do that's going to require less different mental energy that maybe isn't my best work? You know, something that doesn't need my best attention. So, you know, I check in with that. I check in with, so how do I want to show up? What's my mental energy right now? Um, what's, you know, does this fit with what's important? You know, is this something that's actually going to move my career forward, the company's career forward, or the company forward? Like, is it going to achieve the big aims, right? Is it important in that, in that sense? You know, and, and what do we want to accomplish here if it, if it is a meeting? You know, so what's going to be, what's going to be important in this meeting? So, you know, I, I remind myself, of those big picture things, and then I'm informed, then I'm ready to make a decision. Sometimes I'll also check, look around and say, is the space set up properly to help me succeed? You know, if I really need to be present and I know that there's all kinds of mess and distractors on my desk, then I know that I'm actually setting myself up to have a really hard time. So, you know, so those are some other things that I'll keep in mind. And, and each of those, essentially what I'm saying is what I'll remind myself of in a minute or two is sort of, I'll go through a mental checklist of each of the different strategies in the book uh, to check on where I am and am I set up for success or not. So one of the, the elements of, of biohacking, this idea that I'm, I'm a, one of the champions of around changing the environment around you, inside of you, so that you have control of your biology, it, it's something that you're sort of hitting on here. You're like, how much mental energy do you have? If you don't have it, get more. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. if you're in an environment that makes it hard for you to do what's important, then change the environment. Um, this sounds you know, comfortable to me as a way of doing it, but those things are oftentimes also hard to, to take action on. Right? So I'm, I'm trying to imagine, all right, I'm, I'm at the meeting and you know, I, I, don't, I don't really have the mental energy that I, that I thought I wanted to have today. So a lot of people, it's like, they feel helpless. Like, what do I do about that? In your, in your learnings and what you've done, when someone doesn't have mental energy and they want to do something that's at their best levels, what are the tricks they do to get more mental energy? Mm-hmm. Well, what I, what I encourage people to do, what I coach people to do is to look at their calendar, for example, for the coming day. Maybe it's in the morning or for the next day, maybe for the whole week. And to, to say, okay, what are the things I really want to show up for, or maybe what are the things I really need to show up for? And uh, like, let's say there's an important meeting and you know that you need to be present for that. So 
Either if you have the ability to schedule the meeting at a time when you know that you tend to be in pretty good mental shape, then that's great. Then, of course, that's a nice thing to do. If you don't, then looking at what you're doing right before the meeting can be key because there are certain things that we do that can be quite fatiguing that we don't have to do right before we want to show up and be present. <laughs> yes. You know, making a lot of small decisions, you know, just trying to crank out as many emails as you can, um, you know, having a really tough emotional meeting with someone, you know, a hard conversation. Those things don't have to happen right before the meeting where you really need to be present. In fact, if you're thinking about planning around your mental energy, then it's a different kind of mental calculus. You'll be thinking, okay, how can I set myself up to really be present and succeed in that one hour when the meeting is happening? Well, one of the things I'll do is, you know, I will have 10 minutes where I just step outside and breathe, or I won't do X, but I will do something else that I know isn't so taxing. Or this is one of my favorites, just because it's so reliable. Um, there's a way of thinking about exercise that's a different story than we usually get. Usually we hear the long-term story about exercise that maybe, you know, down the road, you'll live longer or, you know, you'll, uh, you'll be, um, you'll look better and maybe indirectly through those things, you'll be less stressed out in general, you know, and so you're probably going to be healthier and show up to work more often and be more present that way. It's hard to kind of say one-to-one, -one, you know, what am I going to get out of exercising today, three months from now when I'm going into that meeting? But there's a totally different side to exercise research that is, you know, well studied, uh, you know, over 100 studies looking at the what they call the acute effects of exercise on mood and concentration. Acute meaning in the next half hour, in the next few hours. What are the consequences? And it turns out that 20 minutes of moderate exercise, uh, you know, working up a light jog, working up a little bit of a sweat, but not, you know, one of those sessions where you're just trying to kill yourself, you know, and prove, you know, push your limits, uh, going up and down the stairs for 10 minutes, um, you know, a brisk walk for 40 minutes, something like that is remarkably reliable for reducing anxiety. So if you want to be able to let the small things go and show up and really be able to focus on what people are talking about, moderate exercise can become a strategic tool for setting you up, can be part of your preparation. And I use it that way all the time now, that it's it now becomes something that I'm using to prepare for certain parts of my day. And if you've had a particularly rough morning or you know that you're going to, you can schedule it in sometime later in the day uh, for, you know, to reset for the afternoon. So it's, it's an extremely reliable thing to do. The question then becomes, you know, well, well, how do I work that in? And if you wait until the moment that you're actually in the meeting already, well, then you don't have that as an opportunity. Uh, but you don't have to wait until the moment you're already in the meeting. These, these, we know that meetings are coming. This is, this is not a surprise to anybody. I, every so often you get called in last minute. But for the most part, we know that meetings are coming. We know that other big things are coming. And we can just do a little bit of advanced planning to set ourselves up properly. It, it's kind of funny. Uh, at some of the meetings I go to, we just have the, the Bulletproof Vibe, which is a whole body vibration machine that gives you kind of rapid exercise-like effects, increases in blood flow and things like that. Uh, so uh, we that might get used during meetings <laughs> by people yeah, sure. who are tired. <laughs> right, take a little break in the meeting, a few minutes. Yeah. But just stand in yeah. the back on that machine that sort of vibrates in a strange way, but it, it energizes you and, and it wakes up the nervous system. So movement uh -huh. of, of any sort. Uh, yoga poses are, are kind of cool. Um, I, I know mm -hmm. one venture capitalist uh, friend who's been um, very, very successful 
uses uh, the Pomodoro technique where he'll exercise for, yeah. or sorry, he'll work for 50 or 55 minutes and then he does like five minutes of Tai Chi or yoga or, and then goes right back into work. And it, it's kind of impressive what happens when you use those, when you use exercise strategically like that, almost to the point, I don't even know if that's exercise versus movement. Like you're not really causing hormetic changes. You're just getting a little, like a little boost in your day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's, you know, depending on the you know, the particular function, psychological change, uh, there are some differences across the research in how much time is really needed. And some of it does come across more like movement. Some of it does come across more like, you know, what we'd probably call typically exercise. Yeah, and so kind of over time, people tease that out, you know, which ones are affecting anxiety, which ones are affecting concentration, which ones are affecting sadness, you know, and, and that sort of thing. I'm sure we'll learn more as time goes on. Let's talk a little bit about multitasking. Good, mm-hmm. good thing, bad thing. Uh, it's a bad thing. It's, I I feel very comfortable saying it's a bad thing. Um, what uh, what multitasking? Well, here's when multitasking can be. Having just said that, here's when multitasking can be okay. When you don't care about the quality of the work, it doesn't matter if you're going to remember what you're doing because your quality will go down. It's pretty well documented. You are going to have much less likelihood of remembering what you're doing. But the thing is, we don't have to be at our best all the time. And that's also something that I really want to encourage people to realize because it's an unrealistic thing to strive for, to always be at your best. That's not how, how biological systems work. But we can be at our best when we need to be. And for the stuff that's less important, let's say you're doing something fairly routine and it's uninteresting. And so you put on the TV in the background just to make it so that you're at least enjoying the time realize that it will take you longer, you won't remember it as well, and you're more likely to make errors. But it might not matter for that task. And so it might be better to feel good while it's happening. So it's, you know, there are plenty of things in our work lives, you know, don't tell the boss, but that that don't actually demand our best. And, you know, we're going to have plenty of, of time where we're not at our best. And it's great to match that time with the less important work. Uh, it, it's really a good way of putting that. I talk a lot about having the energy to bring it all day, every day, uh, when you need to bring it. But it's one thing to have the energy and then to to choose to bring it. But you don't need a lot of energy if all you're doing is, you know, putting your socks in pairs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't know my socks. They're uh, they're pretty intense. So (laughs) I need to do that first thing in the morning. I also find that that given how busy I am with Bulletproof and that I'm still making time for my, my family and my, my kids and all the other things that I do, uh, that I, I'm spending less and less of my time doing things that don't take a lot of concentration. Mm-hmm. I, so that I, I basically, if I can find someone to help me uh, with my socks, then I'm going to get some help with my socks. <laughs> Even though I'm fully capable of doing it and I'm not too good mm-hmm. to do it, it's just that I can probably help more people if I'm not paying attention to my socks and I'm paying attention to this interview. Uh, or I'm, I'm having focused quality time with my kids instead of trying mm-hmm. to do a chore and also play with my kids. Uh, so I, I'm really working on organizing my life that way so that I can have more than those two amazing hours every day. Uh, but at what point do you find in, in your research where people sort of run up against that, well, you know, I, I'm, I ran out of energy. Like, how, how do you know when you hit that point? Mm. Well, I mean, you know, how do you know when you've run out of energy? Is- well, I mean, you're like, okay, I'm tired, but, but you're talking about planning your day. You're talking about 
having you know having inner having important things happen when you have lots of energy and at least the people who, who come to me for coaching even ceos and people like that they don't they don't necessarily know whether tomorrow is going to be a, a powerful day or not a powerful day. And mm. I, I built a lot of the bulletproof techniques because I didn't, I, in fact, I wasn't having very many good days. And I, I wanted predictability and I wanted massive amounts of energy. So I, I was like, what are all of the variables I can find that matter? And I'm just going to turn them all, all the way up. Like, like if you were to you know, go to your car and like turn everything on mm. all the way, that's what I did. I'm like, okay, which ones actually matter? But is there is there something there for for people who are worried about multitasking, worried about the things you talk about? If just do this to have a really good two hours every day, just make sure that when you have the most energy, you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. But other than exercise, like, like how do people get that extra energy, or how do they know they're yeah. going to have it? Predictability well, is the question. There there will be some days for everyone where you just don't have any awesome hours. That yeah. is going to happen but, to everyone. Like it doesn't have to happen. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to happen frequently, though, but there will be days. And that's why it is important to check in with yourself when you get up in the morning. You know, it's, you know, how am I doing right now? Is this the time to take on that very important task that I've been looking forward to having some time to take on? And, you know, most of the time for most people relatively earlier in the day, if they haven't yet distracted themselves, uh, you know, with uh, various small tasks or fatigued themselves with other work, they probably will have a pretty good session available. It is, you know, when we know that there are certain days when we really need to bring it. And uh, for some people, there's going to be some time every day when they really want to show up. Um, For me, that's often the case, in fact. And exercise is a major part of that. And also sleep becomes part of it. I start looking at these things strategically in terms of, you know, how am I going to set myself up for tomorrow, for, you know, really being where I need to be tomorrow. And sometimes I'll look at my calendar and I'll say, you know what, I don't need to be at my best tomorrow. Uh, I just need to be good. And it's okay with me to, to, you know, to be a little tired, that sort of thing. So there's, you know, so, so planning ahead in those ways is one way of doing it. Sleep, exercise. Also, you know, during the day, if you do wake up and you know that you find yourself being tired or, you know, distracted by something, that's an especially important day. To be very strict with yourself about not doing things that are going to fatigue you. Um, some things that will will be having meals that are too large. You can just take your meal and literally cut it in half, have half now and half two hours later. You'll sustain your blood sugar levels more effectively that way. And that's going to help you stay, you know, stay alert um, and be able to focus more easily, have a more stable mood as well. So, you know, um, Water also, you know, we're biological creatures. You will get dehydrated after a couple of hours and it has measurable regular effects on people. It leads them to be more irritable, more hostile when they start to get dehydrated. So if you haven't had any in a couple of hours, that does make a difference. Coffee as well, you know, coffee will, uh, as long as you're having your regular dose, then it tends to help people focus. And if you have your coffee with a little bit of food, um, and I know that you offer that, uh, I received it in the mail, the, uh, the oil that you can include with your coffee. If you have your coffee with fats, um, that's actually going to make it likely that the psychological benefits, that euphoric feeling, is going to last for a couple of hours instead of just a half hour or so if you had it black or with, or with sugar. So, you know, those are some things that we can be doing throughout the day. And we can also be thinking about the work itself. You know, if I, uh, you know, those things that fatigue us and those things that wear us out emotionally are going to be especially trying on a day when 
you wake up and you're not really, you don't really have it. Uh, as well as uh, recognizing that you will be even less capable of multitasking or managing noise in the background. So it becomes even more important to clear your workspace and to put on some noise-canceling headphones if you're in that kind of a, a mode that day. You know, those things are going to be helpful any day when you want to set up some, you know, a period of great productivity. But on a day when you wake up and you're just not feeling it, they become especially important. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me how few people still use noise-canceling headphones in noisy environments. As a performance hack, it's it's entirely underrated. And you hear people talk about sleep quality, and I'm all over making sure the room is dark. But man, during the day, if you don't have a little bit of auditory peace, it does take more brain energy, just physical energy in the brain. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a giant fan of, of the, the highest quality, most effective uh, headphones you can get, especially if you're in a busy office or you're flying. Uh, it'll, mm-hmm. it, it changes your whole day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm with you there. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there are research studies on the psychological consequences of having noise in the background, and it's a pretty straightforward story. Any noise makes it harder to concentrate uh, and makes it harder to pay attention. I mean, our attention systems, that actually, there is a caveat. For people who have severe attentional challenges, then a little bit of white noise can benefit. Uh, apart from that, it gets in the way. And the hardest thing to tune out is speech. Human beings have a hard time tuning out speech. I mean, part of the reason is that our attention systems, and this would be for speech or anything, our attention systems are not designed to stay focused. Our attention systems are designed to pick up on what's changing. That's their evolutionary evolutionary advantage. They can help us detect when there's something novel or important to pay attention to or threatening. They're they're basically looking for tigers that might eat us, uh, things they might be able to eat, or things they might be able to screw. Like, that's what they're for, right? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, so they're not going to find that in whatever PowerPoint you're trying to work on, unless it's, and if they are, then I want to see that PowerPoint. If you work at porn.com, it's entirely different, but okay. (laughs) Right, exactly. People there are are just concentrating easily all day long, right? (laughs) Somehow, I bet not. <laughs> right, yeah. All right, you talk about something else that, that's kind of cool. You talk about the in-between and how to maximize the time between tasks. And I want to pick your brain on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, do you, what should you be doing between important things? Mm. So there's, there's the in-between that happens that's planned, um, which is one task ends and before another task begins. And in that time, it's very important to give yourself the mental opportunity to select the right next task to do. And that only happens when you give yourself the space to actually step back and really have a decision point, you know, to to recognize, to remember what's important, to recognize your mental energy, to, you know, recognize what space you're trying to work in and what sort of environmental challenges you may have. If you give yourself a chance to do that, you're far more likely to select the right thing to do. Then there's also the space in between that happens as we're working. So uh, you may have had the experience of working for a little while, maybe 15, 20 minutes, and then your mind starts to drift and it's just hard hard to stay on track. And if you're like, me, what you do at that point is you internally start yelling at yourself and, you know, like, what's wrong with you? And you start be beating, beating yourself up. Stay focused. You know, I can't believe, like, I've been sitting here 15 minutes. What's wrong with you? Right. Now that, I think we've all tried that. We've tried that for years, decades often, and it keeps not working. 
it keeps it makes no difference. We still drift after 15 to 20 minutes. You know, so clearly something else may be needed. Now, part of the challenge is, I think, the relatively obvious one that when we do start to drift, if we might say, okay, well, I'm just going to take a little break, do something fun or worthwhile. I'll go online and check Facebook and see who liked my status update or check email or or fill in some form, you know, something just to get something productive done. And then I'll come back after a little bit of a, of a break. Although the thing is, it hasn't been a break. Um, so when you start doing something else, you often get lost on autopilot. You could be gone for a half hour or more. Plus, you're also taking in a lot of information still. What you're blocking, this is the bigger problem when we do that, when our mind starts to drift and we either force ourselves to just keep on track or we take one of those kinds of breaks, is that we're blocking something very important from happening. We're blocking mind wandering. And I mean daydreaming by mind wandering. I mean, I really do mean that. And so, you know, the it, precisely what kids get, uh, you know, marked down for in school, you know, daydreaming too often, you know, it doesn't pay attention well enough, keeps on mind wandering, right? That has psychological benefits that are very hard to get otherwise. So some of the things that happen when, when our minds wander is that we integrate certain uh, neural networks that are involved in what we call executive functions or which have to do with things like staying focused on a goal and holding ideas in mind, integrating that with social processing, thinking about ourselves and other people and how we relate. And you can imagine that you know if, if you have some goal-focused work and other social elements of your life, finding ways that those can integrate could be useful. Most of the time, you've got one active or the other. But when we mind wander, they're active at the same time and they integrate. Another thing mind wandering does is it helps with creative incubation. So that's when you've been working on a challenge uh, and creative, it can be a design type of creative, but it can also be creative in many ways. Maybe you're trying to figure out, you know, what's the, the right team to put on a certain project. There are many, anything that's really complex is going to have some creative element. So you've been working on a creative challenge. If you then mind wander and come back to it, you're more likely to come up with creative solutions and the solutions you come up with are going to be rated as more creative. than if you hadn't, then if you had just spent the, that same amount of time working on it, so you actually end up with better results if you let yourself mind wander and then come back. Mind wandering is also useful for finding ways to hold out for something better in the future. So delay of gratification, which has been linked to all kinds of different types of success in life. If you're familiar with the famous marshmallow tests that Walter Michelle ran on right. uh, children's ability to delay gratification and later success in, in college and in their careers and their families. So mind wandering helps us find ways to delay gratification so we don't just jump at what's immediate. So there's a number of things. There are other benefits as well. There are very few things, though, that I know of that in a short amount of time, we're talking minutes, can help you engage in all of that important processing. And it's happening in the background. You can also learn to mind wander more effectively. And once you know the benefits of mind wandering, that becomes a much more relevant thing to be talking about. Something like staring out the window is absolutely the perfect thing to do. It needs to be something that's going to take your mind off of what you were working on, because you're not mind-wandering unless you're not thinking about what you were working on, but where you're not holding ideas in mind, where you don't need to process new information in a deep way and really think deeply about it and hold, hold that information in mind. So something like staring out the window allows you to 
zone out, notice the people, notice the cars, whatever it is, without having to hold a lot in mind. Also looking at art, listening to music, and just kind of noticing the sounds. That kind of stuff is perfect for it. Switching to checking Facebook or any other kind of information source is going to get in the way of it. So the thing that happens then, if we let our minds wander for a few minutes, there's another piece that I love, which is that it gets boring. You know, there's <laughs> after a few minutes, it gets boring. So you're not likely to actually just get lost in autopilot and be gone for a half hour or more. You're going to drift back. And when you drift back, you'll be ready to actually work far more effectively. So you'll the chances are that you'll be back at work quicker and you'll be more effective at the work once you come back to it. If you just have a little self-compassion with your need to mind wander, let your mind wander for a few minutes and then come back to it. So that's that's something that often is a little counterintuitive for people, but it's it's something that probably everyone listening or watching will have done at some point in their life and can recognize. There's this concept of, of default mode or passive mode and then active mode in the brain. And we used to believe as neuroscientists that you were either active or passive. And they showed a while back that there's always some amount of, of passive activity and some amount of active. Like it's more of a slider switch and less of an on-off switch for that. And a lot of people that I work with are interested in creativity and, and even intuition, where somehow you just kind of know it. And all of that happens during this default or passive mode when you're not actively doing something. So when, when you're scheduled every, you know, every hour of every day, uh, kind of like I am, and you don't schedule in the passive time, then you just don't get it, and it, it generally doesn't happen. And I think there can be a loss, but it's not a loss of something that, that's easy to pick up. You're like, you, you just made a, you made a decision that you would not have made had you listened to your gut, but you didn't take the time to listen to your gut. And you're sort of saying that at that time when you allow 15 minutes of doing nothing, including nothing being not checking social media, but just kind of chilling, uh, that, that has some kind of value that's maybe not, not evident right away. Mm -hmm. That's right. And okay. this can be planned into your calendar. And I want I to do. come back and ask you what sorts of things you're thinking of for how you'll take advantage of this. I, I know some people, when I share this with them, then they say, oh, you know what? I used to, uh, you know, I, I, used to, I used to just zone out when I drove to work. And now that I take the subway, I'm, I'm always checking email on the way in. I think I'm just going to let myself zone out on the way in a couple of times. Just a 10-minute trip, see what happens. Or, uh, you know, I used to smoke. I used to go take cigarette breaks. Well, you can still take those breaks without the cigarette. You know, instead, what we often do when we take a break is we pull out our phones but that's an information source. So instead of taking a break without the phone, maybe uh, where you just step out and go and chat with a friend and really commit to hanging out, you know, where you, you give your, rather than trying to pretend that you're sort of working and hanging out at the well, same time. If you're chatting with a friend, are you really doing the, the mind wandering sort of thing? It seems like you're not a very good listener if you do that. It depends, <laughs> depends on the conversation. Yeah, there's some conversations where you know, if you're talking about anything meaningful, then no, it, it is going to get in the way. You're better off being private and, and just going for a walk and thinking. There are some conversations, though, where it's, you know, when sometimes people just sort of hang out and they're kind of in the same room together and just share a few words and uh, the way that good friends might, um, where it's not just, uh, you know, if you're really engaging in the conversation, it will block that. So let's assume people who are listening now are, are going to schedule a few minutes here and there in their calendar 
to just kind of chill, should they actually meditate and just maybe a more focused, uh, maybe a more focused awareness on what they're uh, on what they're doing or what they could be doing during that time? Like, can you can you chill out more effectively? Well, <laughs> Dare I ask it? Hurry, right. chill out faster. <laughs> yeah, I often get that question. You know, how does this connect with other types of or or similar question? How does it connect with mindfulness meditation or other types of meditative thinking? And uh, I don't think that it's identical. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you wouldn't get similar benefits. There have clearly been benefits shown from, you know, a regular 20-minute-a-day mindfulness practice, um, you know, both anecdotally for thousands of years and in research more recently, that uh, where you can see people putting together lots of connections um, that they wouldn't put together otherwise. So that, that mental time to not be focused can help. And there are types of meditation, though, that really do lead you to have a, an intense focus. And there are certain types of meditation where, for example, mindfulness, where it's uh, my understanding is that it's about noticing what's happening in a non-judgmental way and kind of letting the ideas go. And that actually is not a critical piece of mind wandering, the kind of mind wandering that can allow for this background processing to continue to occur. Um, that uh, you can be getting lost and kind of ruminating on something and still have effective mind wandering. So it's it's not um, it's not necessary that you do that. Now, would you have additional benefits if you were engaging in some kind of meditation for a few minutes? Um, would it interfere with some of the benefits of mind wandering? Are they additive? You know, those are things that. that those are empirical questions. You know, I, I think the more people that start having this kind of discussion of, about presuming that they'll be taking small breaks throughout the day and then asking what's the best way to do it, the more likely we are to get some research-based answers in the future. One of the things I've done as a biohacker that's, that's weird is I developed some unusual training exercises. They're actually uh, computer-based that allow me to to train my memory when I'm in this default mind mind wandering mode. Mm. The the problem with mind wandering is that it's the same as dreaming. How many people remember their dreams? Almost no one. So if you can improve your ability to retain and recall what you do when your mind is wandering, you'll probably get more benefit from it. At least that was my hypothesis. Uh, and so I, I've done some weird stuff with neurofeedback and even mm -hmm. outside of the neurofeedback chamber to increase my ability to do that. And I think it's valuable, but it's, it's around creativity. It's around intuition. It's not around you know my ability to to do something or another right now. But I, I think it it's just been helpful to just have more awareness of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. And that would be an additional, I think, a separate type of benefit you might get from mind wandering is actually recalling what you were thinking about. It's the stuff that you weren't thinking about that so you wouldn't have any ability to recall it yes. regardless. That. Uh, are the benefits that that I've come across in research that that I was able to share? The question is, you know, can you remember it if you weren't thinking about it? And uh, my belief is yes, but you know, science will prove that eventually. Mm -hmm. Now we're we're coming up on the end of the show, Josh, and there's a question that I think you'll have an awesome answer to, and it's a question I've asked Great. all the guests. I can't wait to hear what the answer is. <laughs> if someone came to you tomorrow and they said, "Look, I want to kick more ass at life. I want to be better at everything I do." What are the three most important things that I should know? It doesn't have uh, to be just from your research, just whatever it is you've learned in life. Wow. Okay. Um, I want to kick more ass at life. First of all, I would say that is an awesome that is an awesome way to be thinking. 
one thing that I think is kind of underneath even coming to a point where you ask that question is what's known as a growth mindset. If you're familiar with the book mindset, Carol Dweck's work um, and others. So this belief that you can change your abilities has far reaching and uh, quite measurable consequences on the degree to which you change your abilities. And uh, it really does change it can, you know, filter into so many aspects of life. It can, it can change how you, uh, you know, understand why other people get get upset sometimes if they believe they can't change. You know, it's a very different emotional reaction to someone who thinks they can change. So there's, you'll see it playing out in many different ways. Um, you know, the it's it's sort of a, a funny thing. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. So the the belief that you can change leads people to do things that then allow them to actually change and improve. So there's one. Another one is, uh, you know, strategically. And this, I mean, this has made a big difference in my life. As I learned about everything in the book, I started putting it into practice. And if I can summarize it all into one thing, you know, at its highest level, it's about thinking of your day in terms of two awesome hours, really, in terms of how can I set up the conditions for brief periods of being really on, really effective when I need to be, understanding that I don't need to be on all the time and that I can use that other time for the other types of work. So I'm thinking about my day and my work and my mental energy differently. I'm combining them all those ways. How can I set myself up to be really effective, to really be on when I need to be? those brief periods of great productivity and, and, you know, at its highest level, what it comes down to is, is the very same things that set that up also end up leading to greater work-life balance. So I actually work less now than I used to work. And I think that I'm accomplishing more, um, you know, so it's, it's pretty cool. It's been pretty fun. So I have to come up with three things though. So there was the growth mindset. <laughs> there was, there was, uh, if you want to kick ass at life, there's a growth mindset there's the uh, think of your day in terms of two awesome hours. Ah, yes. And the third one, I need to go back and study this research some more because I want to understand the nuance. But there's a lesson that really stood out for me, and it was many years ago when I came across it, that one of the strongest predictors of happiness is how much social contact you get. That's where it comes from. Yeah. For the most part, happiness is about the people you're interacting with your opportunities to make social connections, to learn about other people, to help other people, um, to laugh with other people, that, you know, this is human brains are designed for that. So recognizing that that is an end in itself and an important part of life, you know, that that and that that is where happiness comes from in a major way, you know, that I think that can really shift the way that you prioritize and the way that you set up your days. That is, uh, that's an awesome answer. I, I, I love the way you think about performance during the day. It, it's so in alignment with, uh, uh, with my understanding of how my own brain works and just how, how people in general are, where you're managing your energy, you're managing your focus, and, and managing what you're doing when you're not doing something. So congratulations on a, an academic-based uh, awareness of the brain that I, I think is very, it's very tangible and usable. And, and thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. For, oh, you're... Very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, it's so clear why this fits with your, you know, what you're doing at Bulletproof. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that, uh, you know, we had the chance to connect. 
Uh, likewise, and for people who enjoyed today's show, your book is called Two Awesome Hours, and I'm sure that's enough, but the subtitle is Science-Based Strategies to Harness Your Best Time and Get Your Most Important Work Done with the World's Longest Book Title. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a, a URL that goes with the book that's maybe I a little do, shorter? I do. It's twoawesomehours.com. <laughs> you can read an excerpt there. There's links to all the bookstores there. Um, so okay. twoawesomehours.com. All right. We'll include that in the show notes as well as links to some of the other research we talked about earlier on about NLP and things like that for people who are want to dig deeper on that. Great. Right. Thanks again for being on Bulletproof Radio. Thanks for having me. Have you heard about the new homebiotic spray? I've been working for a couple of years on putting together the kind of bacteria that belong in the environment around you rather than inside of you. So lots of people take probiotics. I'm a huge fan of the right probiotics. But shouldn't you live in an environment with healthy microbes around you? Well, of course, that's how we evolved. So homebiotic is something that is, has never been done before. It's the kind of bacteria that should be in the environment around you. And you can just spray it around your house. It has a pleasant citrus smell. We use organic food-grade botanical oils to help preserve the species of bacteria that's in homebiotic. So this is a way to make sure that there is a competitive, healthy environment in your home, not just a sterile environment because it turns out dirt's good for us and the stuff that grows in dirt's good for us. And you can now make your home better. You can upgrade it with Homebiotic. Check it out. I am so excited to make to have this stuff. I'm so excited to have made it. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.